This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. Each week, we'll be talking to chefs and food journalists about their favorite ingredients. We'll then be talking to food producers about how they make those ingredients and why they're so great. We have a very special show today, Andrea. This is a really special one. This is like capping off our Florida visit, our first time recording outside of the studio in New York. And we have someone who's a personal friend and an amazing chef, Michael White, joining us. So excited for this one. We're going to be talking about caviar. You know, it's interesting. I've been in the caviar business for almost 30 years. For the first 25 of those years, I detested, like I did not eat caviar. I used to, and I, and I love, you know, I'm a pretty adventurous eater, but I, you know, I remember the first days I got into the business, I'd like taste it and be like, eh, it doesn't do anything for me. I didn't really appreciate it. I have to say, it's definitely one of these products that I think is an acquired taste. I've come to love caviar just in the last couple of years. I don't know why that is, but now I, it is something that I crave. It's something that when, you know, when I have a chance to, to eat it, I will definitely order it. I love caviar. You do? I really do. I think it's so special and I think it's celebratory when you eat it, you get excited. At the turn of the century in the 1800s in New York City, there used to be so many sturgeon in the Hudson River that bars, just the regular type of bar, instead of, you know, today when you go to a bar, you're lucky if they put out some mixed nuts or a little snack. They actually used to put out bowls of caviar for the consumers to eat for free with maybe a little bit of crackers. And the idea was, you know, you're having this, you know, lightly salted snack and you're going to drink more beer and you're going to drink more cocktails. And that was actually a thing for many years in New York, in you know, old New York. I think caviar is having a renaissance in the last few years. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that most of the great caviars are farm-raised, sustainably farm-raised. What that's done, there's a consistency and quality level is at an all-time high. And then the pricing, because of the availability, seems to have, it's either very level or it's even, you know, become more affordable than ever. And it seems to be appealing to a younger crowd that's eating caviar. Today, I'm finding a lot of friends who are in their 20s and, and early 30s that love caviar. How do you like caviar? How do I like to eat caviar? Yeah. This is a little like highbrow, lowbrow. Mm -hmm. I like to have Lay's potato chips. Just regular Lay's? No, I'm glad you asked that question, okay. Andrea. A friend of mine, great wine collector, great guys, did a study in the month of December about what the best kind of potato chip is for having it with your caviar. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people like to have potato chips with yeah. caviar. And he found that the Lay's wavy 50% salt or the low salt mm -hmm. was the best potato chip for having with caviar. Low sodium wavy Lay's, the best caviar potato chip. Yeah. You dip okay. a little bit of creme fraiche, mm. you put your caviar on there. It's amazing. And the low salt part makes sense because you don't yeah. want it to be too salty. Yeah, because caviar itself is salty. It has a little bit of saltiness right. to it, good caviar. So that is how I enjoy my caviar. What do you like? I think I kind of like it the old-fashioned way. The blini, creme fraiche, caviar. I don't always love all the accoutrement, like the chopped egg and the red onion. I think it's too much. Like, I'm a purist. I want to taste the caviar. So for me, it's the blini, creme fraiche, caviar. 
I'm, that's I'm with you. I think you have to offer the accoutrements. Of course. But when you have really good caviar, you shouldn't be using anything right. really but the caviar. You know, a lot of people just like to eat the caviar straight up. Right. You don't want to like mask the flavor. Yeah. You want the caviar to shine. Yeah. So Michael White, I can't say enough great things about him. I met him when he first came to New York many years ago, and I'm, I'm talking about 20 years mm -hmm. ago. He was the chef behind, you know, many illustrious restaurants in New York, whether it was Fiamma. I Fiori. Uh, I Fiori and Maria. Maria was like the just, golden jewel. Yeah. If you were lucky enough to eat at Maria when Michael White was there, that restaurant was the top of New York. I can't say what it is now. I haven't eaten there in a few years, mm -hmm. but he is the best pasta maker in North America. Yeah. I think Florida is like really lucky to have him. Oh my God. I mean, he's a legend in New York to bring that talent to, to Florida. I'm not going to lie to you. I've been here, uh, you know, a little while. I've eaten there twice already. It's fantastic. Caviar was so much harder to get great caviar back in the day. And white truffles were easy to get. Now it's kind of changed where white truffles, uh, you know, we had a pretty okay year this year. But um, that's so uh, true because but they've kind of reversed themselves because now there's so much great farm raised caviar. We'll also be joined by Michael Jalian the founder and owner of Sasanian Caviar, as well as Carolina Ambrosini, the national sales manager. Can't wait to hear from her. These guys are based in Florida. They are so fun. Michael is like the quintessential caviar guy. There's a little bit of mystery about mm -hmm. him. Carolina's awesome. She kind of goes out. A lot of high she, energy from her. Yes. Before I think caviar only used to be in like these high-end Michelin star restaurants, but now with smoke trout and the price, you can put it on anything. I had a chance to go into their caviar vault, Andrea. Wow. Yeah. They had so much caviar. Well, walk-in refrigerators, right? Mm -hmm. With hundreds of these tins, which they call original tins of caviar, which are about four or five pounds. Wow. And once they take those tins out, then they pack them and they've got this beautiful facility where they weigh everything and really amazing. So we're so lucky to have them uh, joining us today. What I think is cool is our caviar program at Chef's Warehouse is packaged to order. I'm picturing these like huge tins that you're talking about and then a chef calling into sales saying, I want 125 gram tin or a 250 gram tin. They're then going in at that point and packaging it. That's how fresh our program is. Every tin packed to order. That's correct. Yeah. This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Hey Now Media. So the Florida tour continues, Andrea, our magical mystery tour of Miami. We've driven all the way to the beach. And yeah, now we've taken ourselves to one of the most beautiful properties, I think, in all of Florida, if not the United States right on Miami Beach in Surfside. The waves are crashing a couple hundred yards to our left. The palm trees are swaying out the window. And we've got Michael White here, one of my oldest, he's not old, but one of my oh, oldest old. friends in the uh, industry. I'm older than you. And one of the greatest chefs in America who has taken Italian food to another level. And now he's here in Florida with us. How awesome is that? I'm happy to be here. I really, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Listen, the food tastes so much better in a spot like this. So I'm very fortunate to be cooking here. Yeah. It's on the water. 
as you said, and uh, things have come full circle. Getting ready to do some projects in New York, but this winter I was down and flipped the menu here and made Lido my own, which is, uh, it's been quite fun. Lido restaurant at the Four Seasons Surfside. Andrea, how stunning is this dining room? I mean, I walked in my jaw dropped. There's so much history here. You know, the Kennedys used to come and stay. So to be here in this beautiful, beautiful place with you, it's amazing. And I will say on the way here, I was talking to John. I said, how do you know Michael White? And, you know, tell me a little bit about your relationship. And the first thing he said was, I think that Michael White is the best pasta maker in the United States. Listen, there's a lot of good pasta makers. I have an affinity to making pasta. Mm -hmm. I love to make pasta. And like John, I mean, it's been uh, it's been 25 years I've been doing this. So you grew up in Wisconsin, grew up in Wisconsin and went to work in Chicago as a young person at Spiaggia before anybody really knew about what Italian food was all about. You know, 1984 when Spiaggia opened, I went to work in 1991 there. And Paul Bartolotta was the chef, another mm-hmm. Wisconsin guy. Wisconsin Two guy. guys from Wisconsin making the best Italian food in America. Okay, keep going. But did and, you always want to cook, like, before you got to Chicago? My dad's an avid home cook, and mm-hmm. so, you know, it's cold in the winter, and, you know, it was making soups and that kind of thing and bread baking, but... Yeah, it was definitely something that uh, I, I grew, uh, you know, this fascination of cooking and being in, in, in a restaurant space and, you know, living close to Chicago from Wisconsin. You know, we were going to restaurants, we were going to Rich Melman restaurants. And that was all during the time of this when those kind of restaurants were going up. Oprah was an investor in restaurants. You know, it was, a, it was a really fun time. I call that the golden age of restaurants, mm-hmm. like that for our era, the definitely. early, mid 90s. You bet. It was when the Lincoln Town cars were triple parked outside. Expense accounts seemed to have no limits. 100%. The white truffles were flowing. And our ingredient today, caviar, was a hot commodity back then. That was the era of wild caviar from the Caspian Sea. I was just going to say, completely changed how white truffles have, you know, there's good years and bad years, obviously, depending on weather, but... I feel like caviar was so much harder to get great caviar back in the day and white truffles were easy to get. Now it's kind of changed where white truffles, uh, you know, we had a pretty okay year this year. That's so uh, true because... But they've kind of reversed themselves because now there's so much great farm-raised caviar yeah, from all around the yeah. world. Just to give a brief history of caviar, because caviar is our ingredient today, for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, going back to like the Russian czars and... Even before that, yeah. Even before that, caviar was a wild product coming from a couple of places, including in the United States. You never knew what you were going to get when you bought caviar from former Soviet bloc countries and the Soviet Union or Iran. They would show, you know, these original tins of two, you know, two to four pounds of caviar would show up and you'd open them and it'd almost be like, let's hope for the best. More times than not, they were good, but sometimes you'd open up tins and they were like, not good. They're oily or smashed. Salty, exactly. Broken eggs. What happened politically when the Soviet Union, uh, when Glasnost occurred and the end of communism occurred and it became a free market economy, Everybody who lived near the Caspian Sea started fishing because they were no longer getting state-sponsored checks for income. Mm -hmm. And they started pulling up every single fish they possibly could. And caviar then went on the, the sturgeon went on the endangered species list. It was overfished. You couldn't trade between countries. And it spawned an era of farm-raised caviar. Do you remember the early days Uh, of like Listen, I remember being at Chef's Warehouse when you had in the big freezer some of the last beluga that was in, like in the United States. Before it was How long ago was that? I remember walking in. It's got to be in the early 
early 2000s, yeah, 2001. It's, it's 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah definitely. We are old. Yeah, <laughs> man. But uh, yeah, I've been selling fish eggs for a long time. So beluga became illegal. Caviar, wild caviar, virtually all of it became illegal for sale. And then it sprouted this industry. And to Michael's point of farm-raised caviar, which is great. It's sustainable. The prices are stable. And it's the, the quality is always... We don't have to worry about, like you were saying before, of, of bad eggs or smashed eggs, but the quality is only getting better now, I would say, you know, with like, clean, uh, without terroir, muddy. To Michael's point, it used to be you could open up a tin of farm-raised caviar, it could be very muddy, mm -hmm. have no flavor. Yeah. Usually it wasn't an issue of too salty, but I would say the prevalent thing that I would see is a very linear, nondescript right. taste of kind of nothingness. Maybe yeah, it was probably three, four percent salt. And I think again, the way they learned to feed the fish better, they might have learned how to filter the water, when to feed, when to feed, all those things. And now I've had caviar in the last year, and actually here at uh, Lido, where it has the complexity, it has these nuanced flavors, and it's pretty much as good as the original stuff. Definitely. And the, you have all the benefits of it's a sustainable product, so we're not destroying a fishery, and it's as elegant as ever. And this place has a champagne bar right next door that if you get a chance to come to Miami, you want to eat there. It couldn't be a better place to have a glass of champagne and dip your mother of pearl spoon in some caviar. When I took over the champagne bar, I'm not about 30 gram tins either. You know, 30 grams is just not enough it's to get started. Mm -hmm. So we only serve 50 gram caviar tins. Those who like to eat caviar enjoy the fact of being able to not be chintzy with it. You know, caviar is something that is back in the day when you were saying you could not, it was not for everybody. Now with caviar, there's so many different grades that it's no longer uh, for the elite, if you will. I agree. It's That's much a, more approachable. A, a much more approachable, a lot more young people mm -hmm. into it. I'm looking at our producer, Haley. She is a bona fide caviar lover. She loves she caviar. She doesn't do 30 grams. When she gets caviar, <laughs> she wants 125. Absolutely. So I'm all about it. There you go. See? From being down since in October, since getting here, I don't know how many grams of caviar I've eaten since I've been here. <laughs> it's very good for you. We you talk about the health benefits too. A lot of oils and nutrients. and mm -hmm. Omega-3s. The, the right fats and all that. Yeah. So how do you like to serve caviar? I mean, caviar, you know, obviously with the clean caviar that we, we are using nowadays, uh, you really need nothing. I love to eat caviar with a piece of toast point that has a little bit of butter. It might have turned noisette a little bit, so there's that nutty flavor with caviar. I think temperature is very important when I eat caviar, so if I have a warm piece of toast with caviar and creme fraiche, those different nuances are really important to me when, when eating caviar. Obviously, when it's by itself, it's kind of at its peak. How do you feel about cooking? We put it in as sauces. Valentine's Day, we did mm -hmm. turbo with caviar. So we, we put it in at the last minute when you bring it up to temperature. So not to cook it too much. Caviar is so versatile too, in the sense that I'm using it uh, to season fish with crudos now as well. So maybe backing out some of the salt uh, that we would typically season a fish with, but we're seasoning it with a little bit of salt, but also with caviar as well. I love it. Mm -hmm. One of the dishes that he, I think, you know, if there's a signature dish, it was burrata and lobster, which at the time, and I think the first time I saw it on a menu, I was like, oh, that's an interesting combination. Because for whatever reason, dairy and shellfish or seafood to mm -hmm. me didn't always equate. It's kind of like that thing. Would you shave cheese on your spaghetti, you know, Tomato. With clams or whatever? But that is such a great pairing. Will you ever do caviar with a cheese, like a burrata? Oh, definitely. I'm, I'm actually doing it uh, on Thursday with canapes, with caviar, lobster, and burrata. So. Yum. With no tomatoes, we would leave the tomato off of that, but yep. for sure. Another fave of mine is spaghetti with a 
large dollop of caviar. Oh, yeah. When I was working in France as a young person, uh, we would garnish with uh, with press and a lot saltier. And, and uh, sometimes it's in blocks that you grate and sometimes it's paste. But that's something I grew affinity to. Those who like caviar and something salt with high salinity like that, I enjoy eating it on toast. So what Michael's talking about is pressed caviar. Mm-hmm which was kind of a byproduct of the caviar industry. Maybe eggs that got broken or smaller eggs, they would actually press it into almost like a mold. Mm -hmm. And it was almost like a caviar paste or... Paste. Yeah. And it could be used in a variety of applications. I've seen people put it into like decadent sandwiches Mm -hmm. and things like that. Presse. Nice. Delicious. You know, I was going to ask you a question. Savruga, you don't see much. That's like the one of the four fish, and you don't yeah. see that much. Why is that, John? Uh, it just, the fish itself doesn't lend itself to being farm-raised. Okay, I that's get, the, uh, the aquaculturists have tried, you know, let's talk about the three big caviars. So beluga, the one that everybody always thinks of, and that's the one everyone always asks for. That fish was the one that went in danger first. It's a huge fish. It takes 12 years for it to start producing eggs. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about running a business operation and you're not going to get a return for at least 12 years by the time you start planting that fish. Not you better a, have not, some other income. Yeah, not a good business. <laughs> and it's also very difficult. So that beluga is almost non-existent. There is actually a farm in Florida that is raising some beluga, but even that may be coming to a halt in a little bit. Ocetra, which is the mid-sized fish and always was kind of the connoisseur's favorite. Price was a little bit better. The quality always seemed to have the more nuanced flavor. It wasn't just about the show of a big egg. Luckily for everybody who loves caviar, that one grows really well in captivity. Still takes about five to seven years, though, for the fish to start producing eggs. So it's an investment. Mm -hmm. Savruga, which is the smallest of the sturgeon, for whatever reason, three to five years before it starts producing eggs, doesn't like being held in captivity. And so you don't see a lot of it. Savruga actually does not exist. There's some other species, which you will see if you go to a restaurant. You might see white sturgeon. Mm. On a menu, you might see Siberian, etc. What about uh, Kaluga? That seems to be kind of like a hot button item. But I was told by Carolina, our amazing caviar rep, that it was no more. Kaluga is similar to Beluga. Mm-hmm. It is a farm-raised fish or the product you get today is farm-raised. There's only one place that I know of on earth that occurs, which is the Amur River yes. in China, kind of borders Siberia and China. That is now, from what I understand, to, you know, to your point, is going to be banned as well because even though it's sustainably farm-raised, what happens in these things is it becomes very difficult for the watch guard agencies that are looking overlooking endangered species being traded to tell what's wild and what's not, they're probably going to put a halt to the Mm -hmm. Kaluga. We talked about the approachability of caviar. Most people probably, I think, maybe intimidated to buy it on their own. What do you recommend for somebody who really loves caviar? Where should they go? What should they look for instead of, you know, going to a restaurant? Obviously, uh, you want to purchase from a reputable source. Uh, Obviously, the first thing you do when you open it, you're going to smell it. Caviar should not be fishy smelling whatsoever. The pearl should not be uh, broken. Beautiful, iridescent color, shiny. That's what we look for when we look at, at anything other than that and you're not eating good caviar. It's been out or it's not been stored correctly. Yeah. I think sure. you want to buy it from a person who specializes in caviar. I've seen it at some of the larger national grocery stores. It's still a perishable product. To Michael's point, you know, they're eggs. They mm-hmm. can get broken. You want to go where you know they're packing it for you. That's my two cents on where to buy. 100%. But talking about ingredients, 
and availability. I'm sure you cook a lot at home too. Yes. It's like um, asking a postman if he goes for a walk after work. Too, we've talked so. to chefs and they're like, I don't cook at home or, you know, I'm too tired. But Hey, honey, you want to go for a walk? He's like, no. <laughs> what are the top five pantry staples, like the must-haves for your kitchen? Oil, great oil, number one. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's amazing I say oil first, though, right? It's it's such an important thing. Bonini oil I have in my, my cabinet for sure. Good canned tomatoes if I want to cook something. I have to have a good canned tomato, mm-hmm. some Marzano. It doesn't matter where it's from as long as it's high quality. Always going to be some sliced meats in my fridge. There's always a hunk of mortadella, okay? Love I don't it. have my yeah. slicer down here, but... Yum. If you're going to cook with herbs and dry herbs and things like that, you know, I don't keep them for very long. I try to cook with fresh herbs, but cheese for sure. There's yeah. always mm-hmm. Parmigiano in the fridge. Always. One Italian more. pack tuna for sure for Italian nice. tuna I'm fish a, salad. I'm a tuna lover. All right. That's a good five. Yeah. And it's funny. Your answer, because we ask this to every one of the guests that comes on the show, and there's so much similarity yep. sure. between what the great chefs have. Olive oil is pretty much number one, I would say. Olive oil. A lot of people will even go very basic and say, I have kosher salt or yeah, malt salt, and salt. Pepper. But I, I just said kosher salt. Yeah. It's important. And there's certain brands of kosher salt too. There's certain brands that, yeah. that you can feel it in your hands, mm-hmm. right? Or fingertips right away that are not good. So. Yeah. I'm a diamond crystal girl. I'm a Soma. That is the only salt. Another thing that a lot of chefs say is funny is Calabrian chili shows up mm-hmm. a lot. How do you feel about anchovies? Love. I can whack a tin of Don Bocarte out. Uh, anchovies. The best. That's <laughs> what Andrea's getting me a, a kilo for, for, for Christmas. Christmas. That's yeah. what she keeps promising me. Butter. Yeah. Even French butter. You know, we're looking for impact flavors. That's why chefs love Japanese food because of wasabi, salt, a perfectly uh, salt-cured anchovy that's in oil is just ridiculous. Spanish we were going to call the podcast the anchovy. We put on uh, like an anchovy dressing on a salad here. It's the number one salad here by far. So it's... There's you people tell don't people even know, They don't know that they, they love don't the anchovy. Well, Anchovies are so important. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say the U word. I know. Yeah. Umami. Yeah. No, they're, they're so important. Can you imagine I want to say the U word? Yeah. No, well, I, don't, I try not to too. But it's it's it's, but it's true, true though. A mix of Parmigiano umami, pecorino, anchovy, vinegar. I mean, these are all mm-hmm. things that your your palate. Once you start in, a, I'm salivating right now just yeah. thinking about those things. Right. So, all right, let's go back. So you were at Spiaggia, and then you went to Italy. I decided I needed to get to Italy, get to the source. I'd been there for two plus years with Paul, and I saved all my money up. And I, you know, as as a young person wanting to you know, get to the place where I was cooking, you know, certain dishes. I wanted to go there and see it uh, firsthand. And I had the idea of staying for, you know, a couple months. And then I got there and, and your mind is just... How old were you? About... I was 20, uh, 21, 22 years old. Did so. you feel an affinity? Because you're not Italian. I'm not Italian. As a young person, the ethnic food of choice is definitely, back in the day, was Italian food. There was no sushi. But we only knew Italian-American cooking until I got to Spiaggia, where you're cooking with guinea hen and cabbage and porcinis and pancetta. I was cooking with all these ingredients, you know, that I'd never seen before that they were saying that this was Italian. Cooking with fresh herbs, thyme and rosemary. Think about that. Sure. I mean, that's 30 years ago, but it seems like just forever ago. Now you can go and buy herbs in your grocer. You can do everything. Before. I talk about this all the time on this show because people take it for granted. Even yep. Andrea, mm-hmm. you know, born in the 1980s, yep. she assumes that there was shelves of balsamic vinegar and shelves of olive oil and all, you know, 35 different mm-hmm. types of soft rind cheeses available. Sure. No way. When Michael and I grew up in the uh, 1920s, mm-hmm. <laughs> was, before electricity and there, you were lucky to find a balsamic vinegar in the 1980s on a shelf. Wait, I got to get back to 
to this though. So you're 21, you get to Italy, is your mind blown? I'm blown. I had my Walkman on, you know, and, and, <laughs> and I thought I was going to be hearing like uh, Italian arias. And all of a sudden I heard this like techno music going, and I was like, wow, where am I at? And living above the restaurant. And, and, and it was San Domenico. San Domenico, exactly. Landmark 1991. Restaurant. You know, all of a sudden you're in the kitchen, you're working with young people that all have the same goals that all want to be professional chefs. Did you speak Italian then? No, I went with Chow and Cappuccino. That was about it. So <laughs> American kid learning how to speak Italian. Back in the day, you know, there was no internet. You had to learn how to speak Italian. I think the experience of a young chef going to the source in the old world in Europe is and was so important. Um, I don't think it really happens as much anymore. Like these stories, I, I feel like they're getting lost a little bit. Michael knows better than anyone, I think, right? It's not happening yeah. like it used to. It really isn't because, you know, we didn't have applications and phones. When I wanted to go to a different restaurant in Stage, I wrote a letter. I wrote a note. Yeah. Now it's just a text message away or you meet a friend that works somewhere. And Sometime in the 1990s, it has to do with communication and the internet. You know, you were looking for a picture of carbonara or something like, you know, you mm -hmm. couldn't get any of those, I would say it's a lot easier for a young person to get in the field of cooking just because you have it at your fingertips now, too. It's also a blessing and a curse because there were no uh, shows that, you know, so a lot of young people that want to be in cooking are because of television. They want to be on television, things like that. Right. When I told my father I was going to be a chef, he said, that's fantastic, but how do you expect to make a living? You know, because right. so, my dad's a banker and I'm saying, I'm going to be a chef. You mm -hmm. know, so, Right. It was a galloping gourmet. It was like Yan Kang Cook on TV. You know, it was, it was not much to see. Great chefs of the world. That show changed so many chefs' lives that are chefs today. Yeah. One of them is mine. For me, too. I'm not a chef, but I used to watch that in my suburban New York home at oh. age 13 or 14. Yeah. And go, wow, the south of France. Oh, it's just amazing. This magical place where Roger Verger is or Jacques Maxime. Yeah. And look at these dishes. And what's funny is if you watch, because you can look these up on YouTube They're now. They're great, too. They're great to watch. But you look at the food and it's from, it's like, oh, that's holy mackerel. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's terrible. If they pass that off today, you'd be like, no, 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 no. That guy had three Michelin stars for that. Now it's a total <laughs> production. I mean, Emerald was probably the, the person that I was watching. Um, and a little bit on PBS, like Sarah Moulton for, I want to say, my generation, nicely and loosely. For ours, um, it was Mary Lou Conroy. That was the voiceover on Great Show. Exactly. She had a southern voice. And it was, you know, it was a great show. Yep. They played a little music in the background. A pan of butter and the sauce is finished. You know, it was like, it was like really uh, <laughs> so a funny. slight adjustment. You know, it's it was, great. Yeah. I watched those recently. So, all right, let's go back. Italy, so you're there. How long do you stay in Imola at San Domenico for? I was there for the first go around, like 10 months straight. Okay, so you stay a year. And came home, did nothing but want to make money to go back to Italy. There's five or six tours, you know, after the final. You went, you fell in love, you met an Italian woman. You know, not the third, first time, second time, third time. The fourth time I went back to Italy. I, uh, the fourth time's the charm. Giovanna's uh, my lifelong partner and this whole escapade of cooking and, uh, you know, travel. And One of my greatest memories of my life in the food world was Michael and myself and a group of chefs, including Doug Saltis, including Andrew Carmelini. Oh, times. John Schaefer. We went to Umbria. We went to Spoleto. We went during truffle season. We'd been eating for a week straight. Lunch, dinner. And drinking too. Like and just, drinking just, and everything. Like, we were the guests of honor at a very nice restaurant in the town of Norcha. And it was black truffle season. So everything that came out was covered in black truffles. Mm -hmm. 
And it was the point of the trip where everybody was dreading the next, you know, like hopefully this is going to be like a light dinner. About the sixth or seventh course came out. They put the plate down in front of me and it was a big piece of like braised pork, like a brisato, and they start shaving truffles on it. And I'm looking at it. Now I'm starting to sweat. You're and like, even how it was am 10, I going to it eat was 10 this? degrees outside. Oh. And I look next to me and Michael's there. He's looking at this plate and he looks at me and you, you said, <laughs> we just got to, just got to hammer this you down gotta, now. Do we it. just got to go it. for it. And he took a deep breath and, went, <laughs> <laughs> and we ate it. Yeah. And that to me is always one of my fondest memories of going to Italy was that meal. You know, things have come full turn. I wouldn't think I was cooking in uh, Florida anytime soon, but it, it happened and Listen, Florida's been great to me. It's uh, I love it. It's the sixth borough down here now. So I'm cooking for all my customers from New York. We're looking to do more things down here. Excited on the future, for sure. We are building a 200,000 square foot warehouse in Florida, which is larger than our New York facility, just to give you an idea of what the growth is like here. So yeah, it's, it's been very good to me. So many New York chefs that are down here working right now. And it's easier to do our job down here because of Chef's Warehouse and so many other companies. I would say that if you were doing this four or five years ago, it was more difficult. There's so many new restaurants down here. So everybody's pushing, you know, everybody's mm -hmm. pushing for great food and the beneficiary are only the people that are down here right now. It's, it's been great. a huge shift. If you asked me five to seven years ago to rank the cities of the U.S., Miami probably would have made the top 10. I, I put it in the top three today. That's New York, LA, and Miami. And I don't know which one I would put in first place right now, to be honest with you. Tough call. They're all mm -hmm. so much depth. There's a lot of ethnic food. You told me about a a Chinese restaurant called Foodies here. This market is fully mature and poised for even more growth. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. It's an honor. It's a pleasure. We had dinner here last week. It was blew my mind. The pastas. Mm -hmm. We can't wait to see what's next for you. Oh, Very man. exciting. Thank you. It's exciting to be here and uh, congratulations on the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. This episode is sponsored by Sasani and Caviar, a partner of the Chef's Warehouse and packers of the greatest caviar in America. All right, this is really one of the fun days of my food life. You know, I've been in this business for almost 30 years, and this is the first time I've gotten to visit Sasani and Caviar, our suppliers of amazing caviar at the Chef's Warehouse. We're here today in Fort Lauderdale, Florida with the founder and CEO of Sasani and Caviar, Michael Jalilian. And we're also here with the national sales manager for Sasani and Caviar, Carolina Ambrosini. We just did a field trip here and I am blown away by what I've just seen. You guys have built a caviar business over the last 12 years. That is incredible. Thank you. It's an honor to have you here today and I and we appreciate that you enjoyed your visit. We just saw, it looked like $3 million worth of caviar. The quality of what's going on here, just fascinating, beautiful caviar. Thank you. I, I think a lot of people were in shock. They weren't expecting that. How did you guys get into the caviar business? So I started after college working for family and uh, I was really intrigued by the nature of the industry and the style and the client base that you get to deal with. It's sort of an art form where you have the ability to present something that's a luxury, not a necessity yet it's very high in demand when it's done right. And from there, I was motivated to start the best possible caviar company that can give the best quality, best price, and best service. And after that, you know, 
we developed and grew with partners such as yourself who have the same philosophy. So I think most of the people who listen to Ingredient Insiders know what caviar is, but give us, you know, what is caviar? Tell us, you know, in your eyes, what is caviar? Traditionally, caviar, real caviar is the cured salted sturgeon roe. Fresh caviar that's processed, uh, slightly salted, three to four percent, and matured for around 60 to 90 days and that would be real caviar. You also have a lot of fish roe, which would be like a salmon roe, trout roe, whitefish roe, and other types of fish eggs that are also cured, salted. But in Europe, that can't be called caviar. In the US, any fish roe that is salted can be called caviar. But traditional, true, real caviar is sturgeon roe, of which there's 27 species, but what's for sale in the market is about five different species. Most caviar that we're seeing today is farm-raised, sustainably farm-raised. Where, where are they coming from? Where are these farms? Almost 99% other than some wild American sturgeon is farm-raised. The farms are all over the world, but it's a matter of having the best farm where you could replicate what is produced in wild nature. So that would result in water temperature, water source, and feed and the broodstock that is raised to make this caviar. Um, farms can be found, you have a couple in the US, South America, Europe, China's a big player, Poland, Italy. You guys are shipping caviar for the chef's warehouse all across the United States out of this location. And Carolina, who I mentioned earlier, is the national sales manager. So you're out on the street, you're selling caviar, you're visiting chefs. I know that you do a lot of visits along with the chef's warehouse sales reps. What's a day in the life for a national sales manager in caviar? Um, it sounds yeah. so like <laughs> James Bond, luxurious, exciting. Every day is different. I think on social media, everyone sees the glamour part of it. They're like, oh, she's eating caviar. She's flying to New York. She's in California. There's times where it's stressful. Do you carry a, a suitcase full of caviar? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I do have caviar on me. We have actually a special type of case and I've been stopped by TSA many times. I've seen that case. <laughs> it looks like the kind of case that you want to have like a handcuff on the case and a handcuff on your wrist in case some dangerous person comes up to you and wants to steal your caviar. Yeah, yeah Chicago O'Hare. They stopped me and they pulled me to the side and they opened up the case and it was just caviar. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, TSA Fort Lauderdale knows us though now. Yeah. Especially the JetBlue department. Yeah. Can you take caviar on the airplane? We can, yes. As long as there's gel plaques or solid frozen. Tell us about the different types of caviar that you sell, caviar and caviar. Let's start at like the base level. If I've never had caviar before... I don't have a huge budget and I'm a chef in a restaurant. What, you know, what do I want to put on my menu? So it starts with the application. Do they want to serve it and, you know, a la carte on its own or apply it as an ingredient where it can give some texture, creaminess and saltiness to a, a certain setup? Generally, you start with the rose, which can be very nice for garnishing, for larger gatherings, parties, groups. And then you move up. So we would start with the sturgeon. Basic price entry level would be a good Siberian where you're replicating a product that's very close to the wild Caspian. Uh, it's very nice, dark. It's a stereotype of what people think caviar should look like. So a lot of chefs do gravitate towards the Siberian. Yes, it's an entry level, et cetera, but by all means, it doesn't taste entry level. It's sure. my personal favorite. It's very buttery, creamy texture. When I bring it to a party, everyone loves it. I've always kind of thought there's certain caviars that are less expensive that I refer to almost as garnish caviar. And then you've got the premium caviars, the real luxury product that you eat straight up. But I love the garnish caviars. I mean, one of my favorite 
favorite things to do is as of lately, I love to make deviled eggs and put either smoked trout roe on it or put on Siberian caviar mm-hmm. or even a paddlefish. It looks so great. People like if you do that at home or if you have a restaurant and you take something as simple as a deviled egg and just put a little bit of caviar on it, it elevates that dish so much. Yeah. Before I think caviar only used to be in like these high-end Michelin star restaurants, but now with smoked trout and the price, you can put it on anything. You can put it on top of a Caesar salad, some deviled eggs. Any restaurant can really use caviar. It doesn't always have to be an imperial golden or cetera. Again, I don't think you have to break the bank on these super expensive premium caviars to have a great caviar experience. So you've got, talked about smoked trout roe, we talked about Siberian and paddlefish. What are the premium caviar, the luxury types? Well, get to what you said. Definitely caviar is an acquired taste, but what also makes it really special is the the ceremony and setting you're having it in. It's usually uh, something that you consume in a moment of celebration and joy, and that really brings a lot of enhancement to that experience and the pairing. You're having champagne, friends, family, and a good time. And with that in mind, it becomes something that brings great pleasure. I love it. Yeah. I mean, obviously we think about caviar. It's a New Year's Eve. It's a given. Valentine's Day. It's a given. You mentioned pairings. What are the best drink pairings with caviar? Champagne, obviously. What else? Well, what I've been seeing, I mean, traditionally it's like the champagne, vodka, Yeah. but now I'm having like breweries adding a caviar to the menu. It just Uh depends on the setting. I mean, you can pair it up with anything if you really think about it. It And I also think social media plays a huge influence on that because- Everyone wants to post the good things. That's on a social great media. point. And caviar photographs oh, really yeah. well. It's really it's sexy. It's aesthetically pleasing for sure. Yeah, it's jewelry. What else is also uh, bringing it back is the health benefits because this little egg, this little pearl has, you know, the sturgeon hasn't changed its DNA since the time of the dinosaur. So it's one of the oldest living species. Being that now it's farmed and sustainable and fresh and clean, you have a product where this little pearl and egg has all those nutrients and dynamics that can create this fish that can reach up to you know 2,000 pounds it's got omegas vitamin a vitamin d and it can uh, be very good for the uh, blood source hemoglobin so it's a very nutrient rich product Mm -hmm. in a small amount wow so now you're saying not only is it delicious and decadent but it's actually good for us very healthy yes wow if i'm a chef or a restaurateur where can i get sasanian caviar Number one place to go to Chef's Warehouse. Uh, they inventory, they have a supply dropship program, all the products packed fresh to the standards of Chef's Warehouse and delivered directly to the customer. Nationwide. Okay, and if I'm a home consumer and I want to go get caviar for a holiday or a party to bring over friends, can people come directly to Sasanian and purchase it from you? They can, and I believe Chef's Warehouse also does a retail program. In general, we're inside supermarkets such as Whole Foods and others. Awesome. Well, this has been an amazing discussion. I can't wait to walk back into your packing room and see what's going on there and taste some caviar. And I cannot thank you guys enough. Sasani has been a great partner of the Chef's Warehouse for many years. And I'm so excited that this was the first time I've actually got to come and visit you here in Fort Lauderdale. We look forward to many years of great success together. And thank you guys again. It's been such a great learning experience. Thank you for coming by. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Like what you hear, write us a review and subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders or Twitter at Where Chefs Talk. 
All the products we talked about on this episode can be purchased at chefswarehouse.com.